Welcome everybody to another episode of Float Your Boat. I'm George Sabados and... I'm Brett Pattinson. And you are indeed. I am. Now, Rock and Roller, that's a movie, right? Is it? Yeah. Wasn't that a movie, the guy, you know, Madonna's housemate? Really? What was his name? I don't know. <laughs> the hired help guy. You got me. Her husband. Her old ex-husband. Oh, Guy Ritchie. Guy Ritchie. <laughs> the hired help. Wasn't he the hired help? He's actually more famous than her these days. Oh, these days, yeah. Yeah, well, that's probably why he went his separate ways with, with her. But nonetheless, rock and roller. Was what it, was what it lies movie, on the it? end of your bed and sings? Maduna. <laughs> what lies on your table and sings? Medina. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh. We're going to have to do this intro again, I think. Let's <laughs> no, no, no. No? So let's, we've, so we've let's got, keep going. So we've got Rock and Roller, I, um, who is really underneath Rock and Roller is an, a guy named Mark Rondow. Right. And um, and why is he coming on the show? He's going to come and talk to us about everything 50s. Mark's a DJ. Because apparently if you walk into his house, it's like a walk into the past. His house is phenomenal. It's unbelievable. Really? It's... It, it's it see, it's not like um, I don't know. We'll, hopefully, Mark will talk about this, but it's it's his whole life. It's a lifestyle. Um, he he, eat, lives, and breathes fifties, um, rockabilly, rock and roll. Well, say no more. Why don't we just get him in? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Welcome to the Float Your Boat podcast about how everyday people created their road to success. The highs, the lows, pitfalls and potholes and how they overcame it all. And now, here are your hosts. Welcome everybody. We've got Mark in the studio. Yes. Hello, Hello. Mark. How is everyone? We, oh, we did a, we ran a little preamble on you before you rocked up, but uh, here you are looking... Well, very Hawaiian. Am I correct in saying Hawaiian? Well, yeah, I'm just wearing what I normally wear, which is usually vintage. It's just this this particular shirt is a is a, actually a repro vintage, but it's a it's a, a classic Hawaiian shirt. Yeah, is that is, is that from the Japanese guy that? that this does guy, the... this this shirt is one. Uh, the label's Avanti. Right. Avanti specialise in the reproduction of. Traditional Hawaiian shirts, and they do it extraordinarily well. Right, and not so long ago, I I watched a rerun of Grease. Thank you. And <laughs> uh, and they were all wearing those. Okay, well, these are a little different. These are these are. What are they for a start? Because well, our okay. listeners can't see what what I'm pointing to. Okay, the, most people will look at them and go, "Okay, they're Chuck Taylors," but these particular ones aren't Chuck Taylors. These ones are. PF Flyers, they're again a, an exact reproduction of a military gym boot that they made in the 30s, 40s, 50s and probably into the 60s. So you do a bit of research just trying to just 
put together an outfit? I mean, obviously you do a lot of homework. The whole idea for me is to is to to live as close as I can uh, with a, as much influence from the 1950s as I possibly can get. Now, within reason, like, you know, you don't... There are some mentalities of the 1950s that probably should be left there. There's uh, medical thing advances that we've had since the 1950s that I don't particularly want to go back to. Mm. But there are certain aspects of the 1950s and I'm in a, I'm in a luxurious situation where I can pick and choose what parts of the 1950s that I want to enjoy mm. um, and that's what I tend to do. So on weekends you watch those horrible B-grade, you know, horror movies from well, the Well, first 50s, of all, they're yeah, like horrible. They're absolutely like the blob, <laughs> The Return of the Blob. Second, and secondly, uh, <laughs> what did I watch last weekend? I think I watched um, Forbidden Planet, uh, Leslie Nielsen, um, fabulous movie. And so Robbie, the first, Robbie the Robot's first appearance, I think, too. Re- yeah, really? Mm. Yeah. Well, let's... Backtrack a little bit. I mean, yeah, I, I let's think go we, back. we need to go back because we kind of segued to the future with your current look. But let's go back. Let's go back to mm. where, so where did it all begin? Where did you where Where did you grow up? Where were you born? Okay, I, I I've come from an immigrant family. My father was French. Uh, my mother is English. Uh, they met uh, when they were nineteen and uh, got married in Paris and. Uh, through a mutual Australian friend, they decided to emigrate to Australia. It's what you did when you were twenty-three. Well, the, the English wouldn't wouldn't have taken them, and the French wouldn't have taken them. <laughs> well, there was <laughs> so had to get there, out right. There was always issues there. <laughs> back there, then. Was all, there was always a little bit of issues back then. But uh, I think uh, I think they wanted a new life, like a lot of immigrants did, and they came to Australia and they did that. They created a, a fabulous life. We grew up uh, well, actually. When my mother and father uh, landed in Australia, they spent a year in Coogee and a year in Randwick. And then um, Dad was a, um, a graphic artist. He uh, was uh, one of the top graphic artists in Paris at the time. So he came back here and he started to freelance locally and he worked for a lot of the big advertising agencies, J. Walter Thompson and a few of the, the other big guys. And um, we moved to St Ives uh, in a, um, a, a, a Pettit and Sevet house, which is a like a it was a design house back in the fifties and sixties that was big in that sort of area. We grew up there. Um, I mean, that's that's the bu- that was the bush. Well, it's funny, you know, when my mother and father said they'd bought a house at St Ives. Everyone thought, my God, you're moving to the other side of the world. Mm. Why are you living all the way out there? Mm. Um, and it was, I've got to tell you, as a kid, it was the most ideal place to grow up. It was fabulous. We had bush on our doorstep. We'd leave at 8 o'clock in the morning, not come back till 6 o'clock at night. And we would have gone through, you know, creeks and bushland and birds and lizards and the whole bit, you know, and come back and just had an absolute ball. So it was, a, it was, it was really an idyllic way to grow up. Um, we moved from uh, St Ives uh, in about 1979. Uh, my dad built a house at Warunga and um, I spent the rest of my uh, teenage years growing up at Warunga and, um, again, le- leading a, a pretty idealistic lifestyle out there. Very, very lucky. Um, my parents came here with, I think, about a £35 debt 
and uh, they both uh, worked their backsides off and uh, managed to bring my brother and I up uh, in, a, in a very nice area and um, we were very grateful for that, yeah. So your father was in advertising in, in the 50s and 60s. He was. So I, I really am one of the Mad Men children. I was going to say... It, it was, was that lifestyle. Were you, you hiding were, behind the lounge when uh, they were having their parties? <laughs> you know what? I was. <laughs> I was. I would sneak out. My brother and I would sneak out and we watched the parties and they were... they were. It was just like the TV show. Mm. We, we, I remember going to Dad's advertising agency at North Sydney... Um, as a 16-year-old, I actually worked for my dad as a, as, a, as a kid for about six months doing, you know, odd jobs and stuff. But, but as a younger kid, as an as a, as a eight-year-old or a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old, I remember all of that, that advertising lifestyle and we'd go to parties and we'd go to, like, the director of French Airlines or we'd go to, um, you know, whatever it might be and there'd be these swish parties and, and, and again, it was just like Mad Men and you'd go into the advertising agency and the, the, it was all, it was the, 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 there was a drink cabinet in every office. There was, there was, everyone smoked. You'd walk into the office and there'd be like three foot of blue cigarette smoke throughout the whole office. It was, <laughs> it was like that. It was Mad Men. And everyone had a glass of whiskey in their hands. Oh, by lunchtime, absolutely. Yeah, right. But the, the notorious thing were the long lunches, were the, the three or four hour lunches with clients. It's back when it was all tax deductible. And seriously, you, they, they'd leave the office at lunchtime and they might not be back. They might just go all afternoon and then they might go out to a bar after that. Um, and that's how business was done. That's how they did the business. And at the end of the day, they've just signed up a half a million dollar client, you know. So it, it, that's how it all worked and that's, that's what it was like. So for me as a kid, um, I watch Mad Men and I, I'm reliving my, reliving my childhood really. It's, 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 it was quite odd and bizarre seeing it all. Like a brilliant series, brilliant TV show. And, and almost in keeping with the kind of era that you like to, like to live in today. Uh, but, yeah, it's, it's really funny because it, it, maybe that was some sort of subliminal thing to me. But, but the thing that I remember or the, the turning point for me as far as enjoying 1950s lifestyle or 1950s music which is really what I is my prime sort of um, interest, is playing my mother's records. And my mother, again, grew up in the 1950s and she, uh, in the UK, and she would have gone to see Cliff Richard and she would have gone to see Tommy Steele and she would have gone to see the Everly Brothers and Eddie Cochran and, and Gene Vincent and, and all of those sort of acts that, and Bill Haley, Little Richard, all those acts that went through the UK at the time. And she had 78s and she had 45s of all of these artists. And I remember specifically one point, and it must have been about 10 years of age, where I grabbed a bunch of her records and there was one record in particular that I just loved and it was Elvis Presley, A Big Hunk of Love. And I just played it and played it and played it and played it and played it until I wore the thing out. And I seriously wore the thing out. Um, And from there it was just learning about more about that music and you sort of get to about the age of 14 or 15 
and then all your other friends are listening to, you know, top 40 and you're the weed kid, you know. You know you're into this weed stuff. And then, and then you sort of get to high school and you want to sort of be part of the gang and you start listening to, you know, punk and new wave and, and all of this sort of stuff and you sort of get into that a little bit. But for me, in the background, it was all nine, always <coughs> 1950s music. And so by about the age of 16, I discovered there's a whole bunch of people who loved 1950s music, in particular in the centre of Sydney, and I started hanging out with them. And it was from then it was all downhill. <laughs> and, but, but how did you, I mean, we're talking about pre-internet days. Yeah. Right. How did you find that kind of subculture? It's not that easy. Absolutely not. You'd, you'd, you'd have to find, you'd have to find um, record stores and bands advertising and stuff like that. And then from sort of looking at going into particular record stores that had that type of music and there's one in particular in Sydney which I think is still there called Lawson's and they used to always have um, uh, second-hand records ranging, well, all eras of second-hand records but they did have a lot of a lot of rockabilly and 50s rock and roll and rhythm and blues and country and western and hillbilly and doo-wop and all that sort of stuff. Mm. So I'd continue – as a young kid I'd go in there and flick and I'd buy the odd record with my pocket money. But then you'd see posters on the wall, so-and-so band is playing down at wherever and you'd go, oh, okay, well, maybe if I can swing it and Saturday afternoon and mum and dad won't know, I'll just zip down on the train and just stick my head in the door even though it's a pub I can't get in but – I'll just have a look, you know. And so you'd go and do stuff like that and, and eventually you'd sort of meet other people that were seeing that. It's like, who's this 16-year-old kid? Kid, you can't come in here. You're, you're, you know, this is a pub, this is a venue. You can't, you can't come in here. But it's like, yeah, but that band out so good. It's like good, you know, and, and that's sort of how it all happens, you know. So, so you grew up with, with all of that in the background, your parents and your mum, mum's, you know, love for the 50s and that style of music. So you leave school, mm. you stop working with your dad. Your dad, from my memory, passed away at a certain... Yeah, dad passed away about uh, six months ago now, seven months ago now. Um, but he, uh, for, as far as the history of I'm concerned, um, I worked for my dad after I left school uh, and then I applied to... Uh, I, I really was really lost. I didn't know what to do, as, as most kids are at that age. Mm. It's such a huge decision trying to, trying to think of a career that you want to spend the rest of your life doing and really having no experience in trying to make that decision. So I really, I really, I really feel for kids at that 16, 17, 18-year-old age who are trying to decide on what course to do at university or what career path to choose. It, it is such a huge decision to make and it's so difficult at that age. So mm. anyway, what I did was I thought, okay, look, I'm good with my hands. Um, the music thing didn't really come into it. Like it was mm. – my brother was the musician. My brother was, uh, was, was right into music at high school, um, was an extraordinarily gifted bass player, electric bass player. He moved on to double bass because he got into sort of the whole rockabilly thing as well. Um, and he's lived with that his whole life. He's, he's been a musician his whole life. Whereas with me, it was, it was never something that I thought I could make a living out of. I always thought it was something I could have some fun with. But I, I thought, well, you know, I need a real job. <laughs> Who makes money out of music, really? Yeah. Like, you know, gee. Um, no. Yeah. Well, well, some people did. <laughs> so so, so you cho- what did you choose? Well, I, I, I wanted to be a carpenter. I wanted to be a cabinet maker carpenter. But you got in, close. 
Well, in the early 80s, there was a, a, a real sort of stagnation in the building industry and no one was taking on apprentices. Um, uh, no one was really um, looking at doing any building whatsoever. It was really... Re- the building industry was really just in idle and, and I couldn't find any sort of jobs in that situation <coughs> at all. So after sort of looking around and thinking, okay, what else can I do with my hands? I've got skills um, with my hands. I can do things and... Uh, um, my great-grandfather was a dentist. And so I thought about that and I thought, okay, dentistry, maybe I'll get into dentistry. And uh, as far as getting into dentistry is concerned, you've got to be in the, like the top 2%, 3% of the yeah. intelligence level of the state. And as much as I might be able to get there, I don't think I was that motivated. In other words, another way of saying it is I was lazy. <laughs> and 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 I, I was more interested in having fun rather than you know sticking my head down and doing some hard work. So one thing led to another, and there was this other job career called dental technology, dental technicians. And I thought, well, okay, I could probably do that. And I looked into it more, and basically, what a dental technician does is they construct all the restorations that go into your mouth. So if you're having a porcelain crown made, if you're having an implant done, if you're having a gold crown made, if you're having any, any of those sort of appliances, a splint, um, dentures, uh, any of that sort of stuff that actually goes into your mouth, it's a dental technician who actually constructs that. So there's skill in that. There's artistic sort of level to it. You've got to create. You've got to carve. You've got to really form miniature sculptures and those sculptures have to look identical to natural teeth and you've got to f- you've there's a science background to it as well where you've got to you've got to learn about metallurgy and, and material science and you learn how to work with metals and plastics and resins and and all sorts of stuff um and and i thought to myself well this this could be a, a, a lucrative job and it also could be a very satisfying job so i applied to get into the course up at randwick tafe and um they take about – well, back then they took about 30 people from 300 and they chose me. I, I got in. So I thought, okay, I'm going to stick with it. So I did that. That was a two-year course. Um, I then had to work for two years in the industry and then sit for a registration exam um, and then my career took off. So I, I worked in various dental laboratories in Sydney. Um, I then moved overseas and worked in Harley Street in London. Wow. I worked in a dental laboratory up there servicing, um, well, the big end of town again up there, like some really sort of top dentists and and some some big names at the time. Came back to Australia, worked for a couple of laboratories and then I decided to open up my own laboratory and we've been going now for, well, since 1993. And you love it? Uh, I, now I'm it, 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 I've loved the job all my life. It, it really is a satisfying job and it has been lucrative. I've been able to earn a, a reasonable income out of it. But I'm getting to the part of my career now where um, not that I'm getting tired but I'm, my eyesight is not as good as it used to be. I'm starting to get a little bit of arthritis in my thumbs. It's sort of it's sort of like well, okay, I need to I need to look at what I'm going to do in the future and how I'm going to you know work in the future. Um, and, uh, and other strings strings to my bow is things like um, I teach at Randwick TAFE. I'm a, I've been a casual teacher up there for ten years and teaching dental technology. So that's one thing that I do. Yeah. So, uh, but but you've got a. I, I wouldn't say it's like a secret life, but you've almost got like a dual life, right? You're you're 
a serious dental technician with a serious company. Yeah. But your your real love and your real life is the 50s, right? Absolutely. And you're right, it is. It's, and it's always been a dual life and it's been something that not, I've never hidden it. It's just mm. that people know like the, the two parts of life don't really cross. Mm. So the people I work with in the dental laboratory know that I DJ but they don't come out to any of my gigs and the people that come out to the gigs and are into the sort of the rockabilly side of things really have no interest in the dental laboratory. And so those two paths rarely, rarely ever cross. Mm. Um, and uh, with the dental laboratory, again, we, we service the top end of the market. It's really very professional. Um, you've got to be the best at what you do at that sort of level and it's very stressful, it's intense um, and it's hard work. And to balance that off, I started DJing and it was when I came back from London and... Uh, what happened was I was in London seeing the most incredible acts from the 1950s and even modern bands that were playing rockabilly and, and, and sort of there's a, there was a big scene over there where you could go out seven nights a week and go to a venue and be surrounded by 500 people that were into the same thing you were into. So the rockabilly scene over there, I'd, I'd go to a Saturday night and there'd be a 1,000 people all into the 1950s, all wanting to listen to 1950s music. I'd go on a Wednesday night to a venue in, in, the, in the centre of London and there'd be 400 people there and they'd, they'd be dancing, there'd be a DJ just listening, just playing and everyone would just be listening to, to original music and, and that's how it was back in the 80s and, and early 90s. Um, and it, it's still that way to a certain extent over there but it's just died down quite a bit. So when I came back, I lived two years in London. When I came back here, I was coming from seven nights a week of being able to go out and see many, many acts and original acts and, um, and, and, and new bands that were playing music. And I came back here and I'd be lucky to see one band every month. And it was like I was pulling my hair out. I was like, my God, what have I come back to? I'll come back to the Sahara Desert of Rockabilly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, so, I'm glad you didn't pull your hair out, mate, because you have a lovely perform. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you. But the, 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 the idea was, and I thought to myself, okay, well, someone's got to do something, you know. We can't, we can't be sitting here with no music, none of this sort of music. Someone's got to do something. And I thought, well, no one else is going to do anything. Maybe I should do something. <laughs> so I, I, I'm... I don't know. This is when I bumped into Brett. This is this mm. is about the time that I bumped into Brett and Travis, mm. and um, and it was it was it it was uh, it was something where I thought to myself, okay, well, look, I've got to give it a go. And I think from memory, I think you guys were looking to do something on an alternative night mm. to when you were doing something. You were doing a either I think it was a mod or a scar night mm. on either the Friday or Saturday night, and you were looking to do something. On the opposite night. What, at the Sussex? At the no, su- no, no, not at the Sussex Hotel. This is at the... Century uh, Tavern, wasn't it? Was it no, the Sa- St. Elmo's. St. Elmo's, yeah. St. Elmo's, that's right, yeah. And, and I said, well, look, I can do something for you. We can put a rockabilly band on. I'll DJ and we'll pull 400 people into the venue. No worries at all. We can do that for sure. So anyway, <laughs> Brett and Travis go, yep, let's do it. We're going to do this, okay? So... Little did they know, and I don't know if I've ever told you this, but little did they know I'd never be, been behind a turntable in my life, right? I didn't know how to DJ. I didn't know anything. I had, I had like 
hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of records that are being collected, right? And I knew lots of people in the industry, but I didn't know how to DJ, right? One of my best friends is or was a DJ in the 70s and 80s in the UK. He was living here in Sydney. And I said, I rang him. As soon as we got the gig, as soon as we sort of said, okay, well, we'll do, I think it was the Friday night because I think you guys had the Saturday night and you wanted something for the Friday night. And so I said, okay, we'll do something for the Friday night. We'll book this band, I'll DJ and we'll fill the room. And we did fill the room. I remember, I remember specifically thinking, my God, there's, this room is full. But the thing was is I didn't know how to DJ, right? So, so I think I said to Brett, okay, you get the equipment there and we'll make it all happen. And I'm sort of flying by the seat of my pants and I ring my mate up and his, his name's Mick and I said, Mick, Mick, we've got this gig happening. I don't know how to DJ. You've got to come and turn up and show me how to DJ, okay? And he goes, yeah, yeah, no worries. It's easy. It, 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 you, you'll learn it in five minutes. It's not going to be that difficult, okay? It's like, okay, all right, great, great. So the, the, the Friday comes and, and I turn up early and uh, I sort of look at all the equipment and I, I sort of open it all up and I have no idea where to put any cables or, or do any of that sort of stuff. Anyway, so um, uh, I'm waiting there for Mick and Mick's, you know, Mick said he's going to be there at 6 o'clock and we'll run through it all and, Mick, Mick, where are you, where are you? Oh, look, mate, I'm sorry but I've had something else come up. I can't come in. I can't <laughs> come in. I said, uh, what are you talking about? Classic. We're getting a whole bunch of people here. The band's here. I need to DJ like in 15 minutes. Where are you? I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And anyway, he goes, look, look, all you need to do is plug this in here, plug that in there and then do that and then, you know, those slider things, slide them up and down and, and you know, turn the volume up and down and, and you'll be right. You'll be okay with it. And it's like, oh, crap, man. So I hang up from him and I, and, I, and I look at all the stuff and I think there was a sound guy there too and I sort of begged the sound guy to give me a hand and the sound guy was right on the ball. He knew exactly what was going on. So he pl- helped me plug it all in and I was watching like crazy. And then I, I took about half an hour to get my head round it all and about five beers. And so <laughs> within about an hour, within about an hour, I, 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 I had the, the DJ thing happening I was, I was like an absolute screaming mess from nerves. The band came on, the, 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 the room filled up. I DJed between the sets. We DJed at the end of the night and the whole night was just a killer, a successful night. I went home and just collapsed, just absolutely collapsed. And I think Brett and Travis goes, yeah, let's do this again. It's like, oh, crap, okay. <laughs> so that kicked off, that kicked off a, a, a career. That cre- kicked off a DJ career. In uh, 50s music. In 1950s music. So I've been DJing now for 25 years or plus mm. that and um, I've DJed <coughs> most of the venues in Sydney, old and new. Um, I've DJed overseas. I'm just about to go to Las Vegas for the world's biggest rockabilly festival. I'm DJing over there. Um, I'm DJing in the UK in June for um, a a festival called the Rockabilly Rave. Again, that's the biggest festival I think in Europe uh, from memory. There'll be about 15,000 people there. The Vegas one, there's 50,000 people there. You end up having like 5,000 people on the dance floor. It's it, it's it's pretty awesome and that pretty special awesome. to be DJing for that sort of stuff. Wow. Um, it means I'm an international DJ. I know that sounds a bit wanky but, you know, it means I've DJed around the world. Um, I'm looking at other festivals now. I'm talking to a few other people um, in different parts of the world that I can possibly go and DJ at um, and it's it's really taken off. As I said, I've, I'm not quite making a living out of it but if, for instance, the dental lab 
died and disappeared or I couldn't do that anymore, um, I could probably turn that. I could probably turn DJing into a living. But just to be clear, you don't get dressed up in rockabilly gear and turn up at the gig and then jump in your barina and drive home. You live the fifties through your house is is authentic. Your That's why he has arthritic cu- thumbs because he's <laughs> puts them in his denim jean pockets. And he's walking around like this all day. As you can <laughs> see, George is well versed <laughs> yeah. on the fifties. Yes, yes. Not Jack Kerouac. My lifestyle, my lifestyle and my wife's lifestyle. And in fact both and that's probably why we, we suited to each other so well. Is that we just love everything from the nineteen fifties? Oh, okay, I'm talking okay. about. I mean, was that a coincidence? Or you met her through? Okay, you'll love this story. The nineteen fifties. This story is a this story is a beautiful story. This Sue and I met when we were about twenty twenty one. Okay, we both went out to the rockabilly scene. She looked like Marilyn Monroe. She had blonde hair. She she looked like Marilyn Monroe. Her nickname was Marilyn. I was this. Hard nut. I was this this bodgy, this this teddy boy, who hung out with a lot of the tough kids, and uh, we used to get into a lot of trouble. Anyway, we we sort of knew each other, and and I looked at her and I thought, she's just gorgeous. She's absolutely gorgeous, but she's out of my league. Not not in a million years. Not in a million years would she ever look sideways at me. So we sort of said hi, and we were friends and whatever. We sort of all would see each other at. At, at events and bands and things and, and we sort of had different boyfriends and girlfriends and, and we sort of moved on from our lives and Sue went one way and I went another way. And, you know, we, I lived with girlfriends and had girlfriends who got married and then got divorced and, and um, we didn't see each other for, I don't know, it would have to be probably 20 years. Anyway... We were at a, at a, I was at a venue once and, uh, and and I just sort of looked over and I saw this girl with brunette hair and I thought, wow, that looks like Sue. That looks like Sue Cadzo. And, um, and, I, and I sort of looked at her and she looked at me and she goes, Mark, Sue? Yeah, how are you? This is like 20 years later, right? She'd just gone through a divorce. I'd just split up with a girlfriend and we sort of got chatting. We went out to a few movies together. We started to sort of see each other. And that's how our relationship started, and it was it was it was it was a, a really sort of surreal thing because she loved the nineteen fifties, I loved the nineteen fifties, and it was probably what should have happened twenty years before happened twenty years later. So yeah, very very lucky. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, it is a good yeah. story. Well, yeah. it's amazing that she's right in sync with you. The kind of lifestyle that you have at home. Uh, it is. It is. We yeah. we we all of our ninety percent of our wardrobe is vintage. Okay, so ninety percent of our clothes are either original nineteen fifties clothes or really good reproduction. Um, and uh, our house is a nineteen fifty nine designed and built house that we've restored. All of our furniture is nineteen fifties furniture. Um, uh, even our outdoor area is all 1950s. So, and the so barbecue? The barbecue is an inbuilt gas barbecue and I've built it as close to being a 1950s barbecue as I can possibly make it. So, yeah. Wow. Because, yeah. you know, when Brett was describing his take on your house, I thought bullshit. I, I, I was thinking to myself, bullshit. No one can live like that. No one. 
in this modern age of electronics and plastics and, and can, have a, can have a lifestyle that's just... Pure 1950s. Okay. There but, is, there is take a, me there, for a walk through your there, house. There, 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 are some, there are some parts of it that you have to give in to and the parts of it that you have to give in to are things like telecommunications, okay. Um, we have internet. You know, we have digital TVs. We have um, digital phones. We yeah. have uh, we have all that sort of stuff that that you you really need to live in a modern society. We try and hide it, like you know, we hide our plasma TV behind a beautiful 1950s cabinet that we've constructed. All right. We've got original Bakelite telephones that we use. Um, we've got a we've got a digital telephone that we hide in the corner somewhere that no one sees, um, you know those sort of things. Things like um, washing machines. Um, it's really difficult to find original nineteen fifties washing machines and dryers that work really well. Now I'm not saying that you can't do it, but it is still very difficult. So we've got a modern washing machine. We've got a modern. Um, but you hide that as well. We hide that as well. You know, it's hid behind curtains or right. cupboards or whatever. So when you walk into the house, it looks like you're walking back into 1956, in such a way that we we had a tradesman in recently, a painter, and he walked in the house. He was just coming to give a quote, and he walked into the house and goes, "Oh wow." Did you inherit this from your grandmother, did you? <laughs> it was just like, uh, no, mate, just give us the quote. Thank <laughs> obviously, you. obviously he was a young tradie. <laughs> he had no idea. He had no idea. Yeah, he had no idea. What sort of car yeah. did you drive? Um, okay, well, the work car, I'm afraid, is a is a Subaru wagon. Right. But we've got Sue's got a beautifully restored 1962 EK Holden, and that's oh, wow. her baby, and that that gets driven fairly regularly. And I'm halfway through building a 1940 model hot rod, so wow, that's that's probably maybe 12 months away. 1940 model what? It's a Ford. Right. Yeah, it's a 1940 model Ford. It's a two door, and it's going to be slightly modified, slightly hot rodded, but hot rodded as they would have hot rodded it in the 1950s. So not like modern, old hot rod style. And you're you're doing that yourself? So part so you, of it myself. There are parts of it I can't do. You're pretty handy. Yeah, but there are things that there are things that you need an expert to do, like spray painting. You need someone who's good at spray painting, panel beating. You need someone who's good at panel beating if you want the job done properly. Yeah, I could do it, but it wouldn't be to the level that I'd want it done. Yeah, but yeah. So music-wise, tell us, tell us some of your favourites. I guess. Look, music music is 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 a for me it 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 just really has to be. From the late 40s to the early 60s, right. and generally speaking, I'll like it. You know, I, 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 I'm struggling to think of a song from that period that I don't like. I'm sure there's something there that I don't like, mm. but I'm struggling to think of that. Right. Um, so, originally for me, it was uh, when I say 1950s music that that covers a whole bunch of genres. It could be jazz. It could be rockabilly. It could be rhythm and blues. It could be Cool swinging tunes. It could be um, pop music. It could be um, hillbilly. It could be uh, western swing. It could be um, whatever. Anything from that era. Um, for me, I suppose getting into it was just the classic 1950s rock and roll. So, Bill Haley, Little Richard, Chuck Berry, um, uh, the Everly Brothers, Jerry Lee Lewis, um, 
Gene Vincent, Eddie Cochran, um, mm. those sort of names, mm. the sort of names that that really attracted me to start <clears throat> with. But then when you listen to that sort of stuff, then you find out that there's other parts of that, that the, the music that they play. So you can get into things like rockabilly and you listen to the sun music like Billy Lee Riley or um, uh, Sonny Burgess or uh, Warren Smith um, or you can get into the blues side of things, you know, so you can look at Slim Harpo or you can look at um, Muddy Waters or if you want to get into the hillbilly, you might look at Hank Williams or you might look at um, Pee Wee King or Bob Wills. Uh, doo-wop, you, you might look at um, the Marcells or the Cleftones or um, uh, any any sort of doo-wop bands, uh, the, the Five Keys. Um, if you want to look at um, uh, uh, pop music, you might look at Pat Boone or you might look at um, uh, Frankie Lane or you might look at um, Doris Day. If you want to look at cool swinging tunes, you might look at Ella Fitzgerald or Sammy Davis Jr. or Frank Sinatra or Dean Martin or Bobby Darren or or any uh, Peggy Lee, any of those sort of names. Um, the, the, any of the, they'll all have music there that is thoroughly enjoyable, absolutely thoroughly enjoyable. So it's not so for you. It's not just one line. It's there, there's a it's a it's the whole of the encompass everything in the forties and fifties. Late right? from the late forties to the early early sixties. That's about it. So it, it, yeah. it, it, it for me, it's just an era that that screams cool style, enjoyment, opulence. Um, the beginning of um, leisure time post World War Two was really that you know they've just had seven years of of hell, the world through going through World War Two, and it was sort of like a rebirth and a, a renewal of 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 people, and there was a baby boom, you know, where all of a sudden everyone was getting married and having all of these babies, and 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 and. Most of the time the economy was fairly successful. Most of the time we were getting new houses and there was new music and there was new architecture and there was new new design and there was new art and there was, you know, the advent of, of, of all of this stuff that was sort of growing from the hell that was World War Two. So I look at that and I think to myself, what a fantastic period. So... Um Predominantly, I guess, in some ways, Americans like America's the the hub of it. But now, what what what's happened with you know, is America? It's not that same era. Is that part of it? Is that now well, is it is and it isn't. Um, when when you look at uh, when you look at um, different aspects of of the nineteen fifties, most of it, I suppose, does emanate from the United States. Mm. So you're looking at things like architecture, a lot of it emanated from the US. Music in particular, popular music in particular, was was really sort of started around the United States. A lot of people look to the United States to either copy or emulate what the United States were doing, you know. Cliff Richard was doing what he did in the UK because of Elvis Presley. Johnny O'Keefe was doing what he did in Australia because of the American music as well. Mm. So it was it was really that sort of um, level 
of people looking to a very opulent or, or, a, or a society that was growing and was reasonably opulent in the 1950s, which was generally the United States. And do you think that that stopped in the early 60s or the mid-60s? Because, you know, to me, British mu- music took over in the, in the 60s and swinging London. Yeah, and, look, you know, I, I think the, it's funny. America still had this... this enormous amount of music coming out of it in the in the early 60s and mid 60s and and late 60s but it was all overshadowed in my opinion from the british invasion mm-hmm. so you look into what and what was around during uh, that period in america and there's some really great music some really really great music but you didn't really get to hear about it and it didn't really become popular because the british invasion basically took over the stones and the beatles absolutely Absolutely, you know they they whitewashed a lot of what was happening in the states, and you know you might say, okay, well that's, there were none of it was ever as good as the Beatles or the Stones, but there's some stuff there that really should have been popular mm. and should have been um, successful as far as a music a, a style of music is concerned that really didn't make it as big as it should. Mm. And I'm talking about things like surf music, like everyone says Beach Boys, but there's so much more than that. One of the Australian bands that were, were instrumental in that and which are probably the most underappreciated band in this country, the Atlantics. Mm. The Atlantics nearly single-handedly invented surf music. Mm. Um, they were some of the first proponents of that style of music and uh, they are really, they should be Australia, one of Australia's national treasures, absolutely. Mm. Yeah, well... You know, Australia, Australia, and surfing and surf music. You know, we were ahead of the game. We were, we were, we were the leaders. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Little Paddy and all that stuff. You Absolutely. Know. So, Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. So what's next for Mark Rondell, alias Rock and Roller? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I can see myself sort of continuing on with a dental life for a while yet. I don't see myself getting out of that. You might need to plug up your own soon. Uh, I hope not. <laughs> Brush your teeth morning and night, everybody. <laughs> That's my advice. <laughs> and floss. <laughs> brush a, brush a, brush a. Here's the new Ipana with the brand new flavour. It's dandy for your teeth. But as far as DJing and music goes, um, I've got a few things in the pipeline uh, that I really want to work on and quite work on it quite hard. And it's not just DJing, it could be promoting, it could be events, it could be it could be a whole bunch of things that I'm looking at. And there's still in that still in that space though. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's really become popular in the last, say, five years, I suppose, is modernism or mid-century. It's another word for saying 1950s. And 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 it's really sort of people expressing their appreciation for mid-century architecture, so houses built in the 1950s and early 60s. Uh, Technically speaking, mid-century is 1950. It's the middle of the century, okay? But when people use that term mid-century, they're talking about anything from 40s through to 70s really and that sort of gets all encompassed into that mid-century terminology. Uh, And... That's really becoming popular now. So mid-century furniture is becoming very popular. Mid-century architecture is becoming very, very popular. Um, the music has always been popular um, but it's sort, of, it's sort of like this new take on mid-century with the, the, the love of, you know, design <coughs> and furniture and art and, and architecture and all that sort of stuff. So it's, it's, 
it's not going away. It's still there. And mm. I think um, I think even even fashion, you know, you, a few years ago Vogue had a front cover that was their take on 1950s fashion. Um, all those big houses, all those big big um, design houses had some sort of 50s influence over the last few years. And as everyone says, you know, fashion repeats itself. And I think we're sort of going through that at the moment. Um, so, yeah. But the, but the, would you say the music scene in, in Australia is, is on the decline? It's funny. I was especially talking, the rock, especially what we're talking about. Yeah, that, yeah. Know. The nineteen fifties or rockabilly or or, or or that style of music, if you want to give it a term, um, it, it, it's over the last thirty years has gone in waves. So mm. it'll be really popular, and then all of a sudden it will slow down, and less people will be into it. Then it will become really popular again, mm. and then it will slow down. And I'm talking probably waves of every five years, mm. and I think. I think I'm seeing the end of the, the wave. Mm. I think we're seeing that the, the crest has already been reached mm. and we're starting to see sort of a slow downturn in the amount of people that come out to events and, and, and want to go to music. But in, again, in a few years' time, you'll see it pick up again. It yeah. always does. Um, I, think, um, I think what happens is, is that when it starts to get popular, more and more venues want to put stuff on, more and more... Um, Places want to have bands and DJs and 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 really put sort of events on, uh, but the problem is, is the more people do it, there's only a finite amount of people that want to go and see that sort of stuff. Mm. You know, if you're into MC Hammer or if you're into Fifty Cents or if you're into into something else, Ed Sheeran, whatever it might be, you're not really going to be interested in 1950s music. And 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 what I think happens is that all of a sudden, you know, you've got 50, 50 events happening on one night. And each event has got like ten people in there, mm. and then all of a sudden they go, "Okay, well this isn't working. We'll give that a go. We'll forget that. And we'll move on to something else." And so all of a sudden now there's no venues to go to, and uh, there's still that small group of people looking for somewhere to go. So mm. it sort of sort of rolls, swings and roundabouts. George, yes, Brett. I'm just wondering if you've got any more questions for no, Mark. No, I don't, Mark. I mean, we could continue talking about your lifestyle for for hours. Um, I find it amazing that you, uh, that you know, a set designer, if they wanted to do a, a film or movie of the 1950s, wouldn't have to actually change anything in your house. That's, no, that's they just walk in and, and and we've had that. We've had photo shoots there. We've had we've had Marie Claire do a photo shoot there. We've had um, how they how they know about your place? How would they just through mutual friends or acquaintances? Um, we've had uh, books. Uh, through restaurants that have come and done photo shoots there. We've had ads done there. We've had all sorts of stuff, people wanting to come and use the house. So, you know, I, I guess we're, you know, what float your boat's all about, what floats your boat and that's why we thought we'd get you in because obviously that's the 50s and your lifestyle floats your boat. Absolutely it does. Yeah. Absolutely it does, yeah. There's, there's Rarely do I look into the 1950s and think, okay, I'm not really impressed with that. You know, as I said, there are some mentalities that, that should be left behind in the 1950s, you know. We, we have a certain, certain idea about how women were treated in the 50s or how minorities were treated in the 50s. You know, I'm, I'm lucky enough to be able to leave that sort of stuff behind and not have to think about that. Mm. Or not have to bring that into the future. It's it's in history, and that's where it should stay. Yeah. Um, 
but uh, I can choose to listen to 1950s music. I can choose to dress in 1950s clothes and I can choose to live my life as close to the 1950s as I, as I feel like doing. So we're going to finish with a song. <laughs> it's going to be a hard one. That's, yeah, that's going to be a hard one. Is it a hard one for you? Well, it's funny, you know, because it's probably going to be the song that I mentioned in the beginning. Um, the, I don't have a favourite 1950 song because mm. they, they're all fabulous, mm. all of them. Like, you know, I, I, as I said, I could mention something from Chuck Berry or Little Richard, like The Girl Can't Help It by Little Richard. What, what a great track. Anything by Chuck Berry. Um, uh, Rock the Joint by Bill Haley or, uh, or anything by Eddie Cochran or Gene Vincent or, or anything by Jerry, Jerry Lee Lewis. Or, you know, I, I could sit here for two hours talking to you about what, was, what is a great song. Mm. But I suppose the most influential song for me and the one that I always tend to go back to is Elvis Presley doing A Big Hunk of Love. And again, because it was the song that really started it all for me. And it was that song and, and it's a killer song. It really is a top song. On that note, Mark Rondo, alias, alas, <laughs> rock and roller, thanks for coming. Rock and in roller, thanks, thanks for, so much. Thanks for your time. big hunk of love today, mate. Thank <laughs> you. It's been great. <laughs> Good bring a ever give me just a one of